0: Hello, and welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and the founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. We speak to some of the best founders and investors, many from unicorn companies, and ask them about their journey operational insight, tips, lessons, stories, and anything that can help us uncover what it takes to build a high-growth business. This week, we have Kevin Deestal, partner at Sapphire Ventures. Sapphire is a leading VC firm, partnering with visionary teams and venture funds to build companies of consequence. They've backed companies like Box, Chargebee, LinkedIn, Kazoo, Square, and Tonal. Kevin has been at Sapphire for over 10 years, so he's got a lot of experience. This is another great episode, so let's
1: get started.
0: Hi, Kevin, welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: No, thank you for having me. Uh, it's my it's my pleasure to chat with you folks. I'm very excited about the podcast and uh, I've been a long time listener. Well,
0: that's awesome to hear. We love that. Um, so, Kevin, maybe you could start by just giving a description of what Sapphire Ventures is for anyone that doesn't know and maybe also explain your role at the company.
1: Sure. Uh, Sapphire Ventures is a a global venture capital fund. Um, We operate across three primary strategies. There's a growth stage direct investment arm where I spend most of my time. We have a fund to funds effort and then also an earlier stage sports media entertainment focused fund. But where I spend all of my time is on the direct investment. So we are looking for what we call companies of consequence globally and typically play a little bit later stage than some of the folks you may chat with. So it's really more series B all the way through IPO, writing checks anywhere from 10 to 60 to 100 million dollars over the life of an investment. We're very heavy in B2B land, but uh, certainly sprinkle in some consumer and really looking for category-defining businesses and entrepreneurs are going to really change the world over the course of their careers. Uh, And then my role, I'm one of the partners. I've been with the fund for 10 years now. Uh, I was actually based in San Francisco for the majority of that. And then I moved to Europe at the beginning of last year to really help double and triple down on our efforts in Europe and Israel. And it's been an incredible ride. This is a very exciting ecosystem.
2: Yeah, Kevin, I've been looking forward to, to speaking to you, given what's going on in, in late stage private markets. And I'm sure it's, well, it is filtering down to earlier stages as well. But I was you know, looking at a few of the Sapphire portfolio and, you know, Sorksall Kazoo, a bunch of others without going to the others. But um, yeah, just interested to hear kind of how you guys think about investing in what, you know, three months ago, maybe everyone had their suspicions about it being a toppy market. Um, And now that's kind of looking like the suspicions were correct. And how do you guys handle that? Because you have to keep investing, right? But everyone's kind of investing in the knowledge that some of their investments might just go a little bit bad due to the market conditions. So how how do you kind of think about that? and, And how do you advise companies now that things have got a little bit tough?
1: Yeah, the, the, the market was certainly frothy over the last couple of years, but I, I think that's what happens in a 12-year bull market. There's a, a really long run there. Things certainly have changed from like a, a day-to-day and just looking at the public markets for sure. Um, we see that starting to ripple into um, the growth stage uh, all the way down to the earlier stage investments. But the key part is that that actually doesn't change the way we view our investment strategy, Um, sure, there are some tactical elements that that may change, but we're investing in companies that we hold for anywhere from three to 10 plus years. And so we're definitely riding through macro highs and and macro lows, and we're looking for businesses. I mentioned that companies of consequence, where these businesses are going to be the next $10 billion plus businesses that define decades and generations in our lives. And we're still actively looking for those. So we're supporting those from our portfolio, and we're certainly active on the new investment front. So, pace, valuations, terms, check sizes, all of that may fluctuate slightly from where they were six months ago, but we're still looking for the absolute best entrepreneurs who are creating the absolute best companies across the globe. Just
2: internally, I'm interested in how, very interested in how you guys support each other internally when an investment goes bad because you know it happens to all it happens to all investors or most investors and you know it would be easy to to lose your nerve and take less risk going forward so how do you at sapphire and with other investors that you speak to how do you kind of keep each other's morale up when a investment goes bad
1: yeah we, we manage 10 billion u.s dollars across all of our our fund strategies there are partners sitting across the globe. It's one fund, it's one investment committee on the growth stage side of what we do. And that support and camaraderie is, is a huge element of the success of our platform. We're obviously looking for companies and hope, hopefully the, most of our investments will be incredibly positive and successful. Um, they certainly aren't all like that. That's just the nature of the beast. When companies do start to slip or go sideways at all, we are very supportive of those businesses. There's a financial side of things and there's a real financial argument to being supportive of businesses because we've had some that have gotten a little rocky for a few quarters. It looked bleak. We helped support those businesses and then they became multi-billion dollar outcomes. And so there's definitely a financial side of the equation there and that can make real sense from an ROI perspective. There's also there's just the, the mentality and the culture that we have built at Sapphire, and that goes from the very top all the way down to the bottom of we want to support great individuals and teams who are creating these companies of consequence. And we are very committed to doing that. And so there's both the, the sort of objective empirical side, but there's also the, the more qualitative side of that. And the reason I'm at Sapphire is we have a group that we are all aligned in supporting those businesses. Uh, it'll be interesting, you know, The things certainly have changed now, but companies are still performing well. There are still, there are huge macro tailwinds behind digitization of previously analog solutions. So um, while, yeah, the public markets may be off right now, uh, we're still very bullish on just tech in general, pushing for it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the companies of consequence of- really interesting phrase i'd like to understand a little bit more about so what are the elements that qualify a company for that title and also as a later stage investor how much is art and how much is science because i think a lot of people think that later stage investing is basically just like do these numbers fit into my spreadsheet and so it gets a green tick like how much of it is that and how much of it is also just believing in markets people business models etc that maybe you can't read through a, a spreadsheet.
1: Uh, yeah maybe I'll answer the second one first um, and then I'll roll into the, the other. Uh, so yeah there's always a balance between art and science. I, I'm a firm believer that a lot of the ultimate success in almost anything in life but certainly on the investing side, there is an element of luck that, that is unavoidable in knowing which company is going to be Facebook and which company is going to be MySpace. Like that's a really difficult call at the time. And so there are absolutely a hundred plus criteria that we look at from a science perspective, like a numerical, very deep diligence articulation of the merits of the business financially. And that can even go into more of the qualitative side of things around just like, the entrepreneurial spirit and the drive of a team and their experience and things like that. So it's not all just numbers. But I do believe you need to be smart, hard enough, hardworking enough, put yourself in enough situations, like good situations, for that luck to play out. So I by no means think that it's just arbitrary when people are successful or not. But I do think that all of the work we do. Is to put us into those situations where some of that luck can play out on our side, but it is—it's always a, a delicate balance. And then, being later stage numbers, we certainly can corroborate our underlying theses with some of the numerical data from customers and feedback and net dollar retention and growth and things of that nature, but always, always a balance of art and science, um, no matter what anyone else tells you. Uh, On the companies of consequence, this is, it's really the, the single most important mantra at Sapphire Ventures. The reason what that actually means is we're looking for companies that again, can be category defining businesses and the entrepreneurs who have the drive to go build those. But we also want to make sure that with that success, that these companies are doing it in the right way and these individuals are doing it in the right way. And that is both how they conduct themselves as business people, uh, how they build teams and the culture that they drive throughout the, the organization. So it really hits on two sides of that we're looking for very successful businesses that can be extremely large. I mentioned like defining generations, but also that people are doing it in the in the right way. Yeah,
2: very, very interesting indeed. So I, I was looking at your, I think, your own portfolio at Sapphire and I, I have a bit of a fascination with quantified self and I, I have a feeling that you're you're kind of interested in that stuff as well with like investments in 23andMe and Fitbit and a couple of others that I saw. I don't know how long ago those investments were made, but those companies were kind of set up a fair while ago now and really at the kind of outset of the quantified self movement. And it was probably a very niche thing back then. But I think the whole movement around closing the loop on health and wellbeing seems to really be coming into its prime. And um, it feels like we're only just at a point where you can actually begin to do that, where the data is available to draw causal relationships between your behaviour and how you act and you know what you eat and what you do and, and actually health outcomes. Um, And I wonder if you have a kind of thesis behind that and and whether you have a view on what the future of Quantified Self looks like.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I certainly want to answer the specific question, but to me, it all comes down to data and then what you do with that data. And that that wouldn't be inclusive of not even like Quantified Self, like this would be for any sort of enterprise software B2B solution that we invest in as well is that it does come down to data and then gleaning insights from that data and then ultimately creating action from those insights. And so with Fitbit and 23andMe, it was more specific around around health, but it's really Fitbit was able to aggregate data that people otherwise either couldn't or wouldn't do in mass and then determining via that data what the key insights were. So what appropriate levels of activity were, or identifying that if you're sitting idle for a certain amount of time, someone should be notified of that. That then goes into diet and everything like that. With 23andMe, you're talking about an almost endless amount of genomic and phenotypic information that you can aggregate. So not only identifying what is is creating a genetic condition, but also the phenotypic, like how that, how that genetic condition represents itself from like symptoms and things of that nature, coupling those together. And so taking huge amounts of data to then glean insights of what could be a potential cause of this, and then the action of what could you potentially introduce to change how that's represented in the body. Those are like two enormously large uh, and very close to home issues for me, but that spans even to, we do a lot of work around HR and employee empowerment and things like that. And so I've made other investments in that where it's more of capturing data of like an employee within a firm and then how that correlates to a, an ROI of whether you train that person, whether you ensure that they continue to be engaged, whether you provide a coach or mentor. It really spans the, the gamut. And we've made a number of investments, whether it's Culture Amp or Degreed or BetterUp around those similar themes. And then even into like the hardcore infrastructure, like deep, deep tech stuff, it's very similar mentality of how do we take all of this data that either it was either siloed or unavailable or wasn't available in mass and connected to then glean those same insights and actions. So it's a, would say it's a common theme that's throughout our entire investment thesis. The investment in BetterUp, I
2: think is interesting as well, because I mean, I've kind of always felt like the... business that kind of you know maybe maybe ends up kind of being a category leader in quantified self but i've always felt it's gonna there needs to be a b2b angle to to scale up because i think going via consumers for something like that certainly for the next few years it's going to be pretty niche will people really pay for it are people just hacking together their own tools if they're keen enough on like optimization and stuff like that so I've always felt like being able to provide dashboards to HR and being able to say, well, you know, if your employees are working too hard and they're this kind of employee in this kind of department, then they're going to quit unless you do X, Y and Z. And th- those kinds of insights feel super valuable. And I, and I wonder whether that's something that you've been seeing with BetterUp and that BetterUp have been seeing, you know, whether they're able to have a real positive impact on, on like employee retention and, and ultimately the bottom line.
1: I'll answer this for better, but it's representative of all those investments I had mentioned. In the past, uh, a lot of those things, even if you, to your earlier question on like Fitbit as an example, like there was no concrete ROI between whether someone does get that coaching and mentorship or whether someone is like more mentally healthy, quote unquote, mentally healthy at work or engaged at work to then the actual outcome from a business perspective. It's very difficult to do that historically. The beauty of these businesses and the, and the reason why we made these investments is really because now you can actually connect those actions. So to have a more engaged employee, you can now make that connection via data to like a performance review and see that they're actually, the more engaged employees are performing better in the case of Culture Amp, With DeGreed, you have upskilling and learning and development which creates a more engaged and a more productive and honestly, a longer retained employee with better up providing that coaching and mentorship, you up level individuals and managers within all the way down to the rank and file up level these people to be more productive, take on bigger roles and titles within an organization, which we can now show actually has bottom line results. So connecting that ROI, I think was the big kind of chasm that people jumped over the last few years. And it's really from being able to capture that data that was once siloed and then representing that in a more numerical way. I think COVID and the pandemic certainly catalyzed a lot of just the idea that, oh, wow, the employee is not a cost center. The employee is actually a huge component, if not the most valuable resource of a business. And so we're we're very excited about all of those macro tailwinds there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to hear those little nuances and how it all works. And it, I think what Hector and you are talking about there is being quite early in a market, but then seeing where those opportunities will, will really get scale and traction. So, Kevin, you mentioned you've been at Safar for like 10 years. What is a red flag for a company now that maybe you didn't recognize as a red flag earlier in your investment career?
1: Oh, uh, that's interesting. I almost have a, an answer that's like in reverse. When I was first starting, there were these two phrases. One was like board dynamic. I always thought it was ridiculous that the success or failure of a company could be determined by the members of the, of the board. But now having been on boards for many, you know, dozens of boards for a decade plus, the board dynamic is actually really important. So I used to think of it as like not a big issue, but now that can be like a real big red flag The other one was pattern recognition. I used to think that was ridiculous when people would, oh yeah, you know, I I have this pattern recognition because I've seen this movie play out for the last 15 years. That actually is really important too, um, especially in a time like this. So a lot of people have been in this business and haven't seen something that isn't up and to the right. And having folks who have lived through the dot-com bubble and the financial crisis, the housing crisis, have seen this stuff before, or even board members or entrepreneurs who have gone through this before. Um, We certainly look for entrepreneurs who are experienced and, you know, more of the serial entrepreneur, because even if they failed, they know which bear traps to avoid going forward. So both of those, I I would say are maybe not totally answering (laughs) your question, but sort of things that I've noticed have changed in my my career uh, over the last 10 plus years. In terms of like, more recently, given the way the market has turned i'd say red flag is just if if an entrepreneur isn't able to understand it 's not that you have to like cut cost um, or get to profitability, but to not grok that you need to at least be nimble enough and and ready enough to change levers and that 's both from like if the market turns poorly or if the market goes incredibly well, you want to anticipate and be proactive about. How to change your business on a weekly basis, and that can be stepping on the gas or taking your foot off the gas. And so, if people just are, are sort of blind or oblivious to that, that's certainly a, a red flag.
0: That's really interesting because I think some founders might worry about communicating too many kind of multi-strategy, you know, like options to the board without sort of distracting them or thinking that 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 founder's lacking focus or whatever. So. What is the best way for a founder to say, here's plan A, this is what we're all subscribed to, and this is what we want to do. But if this happens, here's plan B. If this happens, here's plan C. What's the best way for them to communicate that to you as a board member?
1: I don't want to dismiss the importance of a board because I do think it's really important and board members can really help given their experience in these things. My job as a board member is to is to be an advisor and provide advice and guidance. But I ultimately am investing in the management teams to manage the business. Like I don't wanna manage the day to day. That's why I'm investing behind these individuals. There's a lot of trust in that and mutual trust going both ways. So it's not that you have to like, I don't think people need to be beholden to coming back to the board or or worried about having an open and honest conversation with them about where the business is today or where the market is today and where you want it to be in in the future more specifically around having that agility and that nimbleness and flexibility to change things across a number of dimensions is really difficult, but really important. I tend to leave it to the the managers and operators of the business to, to do the sort of iteration on the 10 underlying plans and levers to pull, and then report up to the board of what the overall strategy is given they have to make a move. But we often look at scenarios, even in good times, like over the last couple of years, when things were just fully up and to the right, you'd have a budget and then you'd have you know a forecast and that that's an ongoing forecast. And that can have numbers going up, it can have numbers going down, it can have, if we see this, um, then we'll do this. So there's a bunch of if then statements throughout. And that's something that as, as a board, we try to work iteratively with these businesses. So it is, it's a delicate balance between just like, You know, drinking from a fire hose, and um, and then being the most effective and efficient with that decision making. But it really does come down to the CEO and the CEO's team to guide those decisions, and then the board to provide advice and guidance on on how they feel, given their experiences, on whether that's the right path or
2: not. You mentioned an an important point and an interesting point about pattern recognition. I mean, I I think about that a lot because I kind of think it's one of the most important things in investing, you know, if you think of it in a very unromantic way about humans being a kind of really advanced AI, which is kind of what we are, then, you know, we're we're basically scooping up data from our lives and what we see and experience and building models to then base our decisions on going forwards. And, and, and that basically, I think is what we mean by what well, can be what we mean by pattern recognition. But I think it's, super important to recognize the biases that come into that because I mean as investors we're looking for outliers and <laughs> by their very nature they don't fit into the models often so so I think it's, it's not fail safe but I wonder how you've kind of spent your investment career building those mental models and and how you think about making best use of them while being careful to avoid biases that perhaps would lead you down the wrong path.
1: I don't want to get too disparaging on the investor side, but like one of the biggest ways people can get into trouble is almost touting something as fact when it may not actually be fact. And so entrepreneurs are going to rely—this um, is now from like the board perspective—will often rely on the board for that advice and that that pattern recognition to determine what the best next steps are for the business. That's a huge onus and and responsibility for the board member. And so you really need to be intellectually honest with what you know, what you don't know, what you've experienced, whether things have gone good or bad. But you also need to realize that you have biases, whether conscious or unconscious. Not every situation is the same. And so just because something went well last time or something went poorly last time doesn't mean it will be the same in this particular situation. I try to bring a very, very open open dialogue and, and honesty to board meetings. We just had a situation recently where something had come up that I didn't have personal experience in. And rather than like pretend like I did, I just said, look, I don't know the answer to this. Let me go find the an- Like, let me go talk to a bunch of other people internally and externally to try to get you some of those data points. But that isn't always the case. And you can get into to real trouble there again, whether it's biases or just being wrong. But I, I do think that pattern recognition is important because entrepreneurs in many cases are doing this for the first time. Maybe it's their second or third time. I don't want to like overplay my hand here, but I, I've seen this hundreds of times. I've been intimately involved with dozens and dozens of companies where they've had to like step on the gas more um, and maybe maybe stretch efficiency a little to capture a market or hey, things aren't going quite as planned. Do we need to look at revising the cost structure of a business? And what are the consequences of doing so? There's just a lot. There's a lot that's going on. And I never, ever tout anything I say as being like gospel or fact. It's more of, let me provide you with these experiences and this information so that we all, myself included, can collectively have a conversation around it to determine what we believe is the best path forward it may not always turn out to be the the right or the optimal path it's similar with investing you take all of the information and you try to make the best decision at the time and then we live with those decisions and we can certainly be nimble and dynamic and change and and learn from those mistakes but it's all in this spirit of pushing forward and doing what's what's best
2: yeah i think it's it's been one of the things that i've actually liked about vc is that a lot of the people that i meet are not too stuck in their own ways and hopefully lots of them are aware that you have to be aware that your opinion might not always be right and there's very little black and white which I really like actually because you know it's quite annoying coming across people who (laughs) think they're always right.
1: I will tell you there's there is nothing more exciting to me than when someone whether it's an entrepreneur or a board member drops some experience that I have not experienced myself in a situation or a dialogue because I, I think of experiences as as like arrows that you can put in your quill to use later. And so it's just like every experience and the consequences and ramifications of those experiences to me is just adding more skills to my skill set that I can ultimately call upon when needed. And so in like the case I mentioned where I I had to go and speak with other people, I now have those experiences that in the when this presents itself in a future situation, I can then call upon those experiences. So I, I love learning from other people in that respect. Yeah. Th-
2: there was a good example of this actually the other day where I-, I was just in the office and we were looking, we were having a discussion about all the companies that were having a horrible time with this low valuations and all that. And we looked at um layoffs dot X, Y, Z, Layoffs.fyi, which is the website where all the layoffs are listed. And um Damien at episode one was like, you know, you might look at these companies and think, oh, God, these are all the ones that are doing really badly. And he was like, oh, that's a good list of all the best run companies. (laughs) And it's like, actually, it's quite an interesting way of looking at it. Like there are a whole bunch of companies out there doing really badly that haven't had any layoffs because they're poorly run. (laughs) Um, And so it is just an alternative kind of viewpoint.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll look, I'll, I'll say that in any business at any time, in, in a, whether it's a bull or a bear market, you want to make sure that you're moving forward most effectively and efficiently and and reevaluating the people you have and the the solutions you're using and the tech architecture and all of that. We're always trying to make that, we're always pushing teams to make that as, as optimal for the success of the business and all of its stakeholders and shareholders. And so, yeah, I, I think you'll see people will take, a bit faster action than, than others, but it's not, I don't know if it's necessarily good or bad or indicative of whether a business is well-run or, or not. It, there's just, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes in these decisions. And, and then remember these are real, real life decisions. This, this does, you know, there's a, the numerical side of this, but you're also talking about people's occupations and their lives and, and those of their families and things. And so these are like, those are, these are real decisions that people take real thoughtful approach to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Kevin, you mentioned another sort of big human aspect a couple of times, which is about coaching. And so it seems like coaching is a big part of how you think founders need to develop. Do you guys use internal resources? Or do you ever use external resources to kind of help founders with some coaching?
1: Yeah, we, we try to do anything and everything to be helpful. Um, we certainly don't make that mandatory or anything of that nature for the entrepreneurs and their teams. It's not just a CEO, but it's like the full C suite and then down into more of the management roles. Um, we also try to provide solutions, even like a, a better up for everyone all the way down throughout the ranks of an organization. Like some of this goes to pattern recognition, I guess, but it's just being able to build that skill set over the course of a a career and a lifetime to me is just so important. Like That learning element is so important that we try to provide that to our our teams. Um, So we have internal resources. So in addition to just providing capital, we have a full what we call portfolio growth team, that portfolio growth team is a value added team that does things like anything from customer introductions to go to market partnerships, to international expansion, to exec level recruiting helping find coaches and mentorships. We have advisory councils where uh, there are like friends of Sapphire that we then can put into businesses. Sometimes those become full-time roles. Sometimes those are more advisory. Uh, we provide exec level coaching. We are more than happy to facilitate external uh, exec level coaching. So it's really the the full shebang. Um, some people really Take us up on that and use that in in spades, and and others not as much uh, on the like coaching specific advisory side. But that I will tell you, despite managing a ten billion dollar fund, like our CEOs look at that portfolio growth effort and just all of the value we can add through that. That is above and beyond just a, a check. That is why people choose Sapphire. That is how we differentiate ourselves in market. So it starts, yeah, it may start with some of that that advisory level stuff for the CEO, but it really spans throughout the gamut of the entire business to help move the needle for them.
0: And has Sapphire always offered that portfolio growth piece, or is that something that's developed over time where you started with one thing, then you added another, then you added another, then it became a sort of department? How has that evolved in the 10 years that you've been there?
1: It's interesting. It's one of the things that's evolved more than anything else. So I I started with Sapphire and there were seven or eight of us. Um, There are now over 90 of us. When I came on this, what we now call portfolio growth was it, it was sort of an element of this like brainchild of the team of what we wanted to do to really differentiate ourselves. And now everyone tries to tout some sort of value add. But 10 years ago, that was absolutely not the case. Part of the reason I joined with Sapphire, among it being a great group of individuals who all think differently and come together to to make this what we think is the right decision at the time, Um, a great culture and, and an ability to help build something from eight people to 90 plus people. On top of that, this like value add piece was really important to me. I, from the very get go, wanted to be able to walk into an entrepreneur's office and tell them why they needed to take Sapphire's money or why they would be much better off taking Sapphire's money than they would taking someone else's. It's not like an ego thing or or anything of that nature. It really is, I want to help you be as successful as possible. My success will be a byproduct of that. But I felt very, very passionately about that. Again, it wasn't even in place, but the the idea was in place that we collectively wanted to build out this effort. We then started that team, which is now eight or nine years ago. And that team is one of the largest contingents of that 90-person global fund. So it's over 20 people sit there and just day in and day out add value to the portfolio. That is expanded from a single individual trying to like work a Rolodex to we now have a whole team for talent, for marketing, for go-to-market. We have centers of excellence around sales, around marketing, around international expansion. Um, We're building some in-house, like real high-level former exec advisement and counsel for for organizations and business models. There's a a whole slew of what we do. And that's where, frankly, our largest investment has gone from a headcount perspective. So it's a big, big focus for Sapphire. And and again, what really differentiates us from others. It,
2: it's always great to hear how how VCs seek to differentiate themselves. But I, I'm going to put it out there that, that VCs get it pretty easy, um, in general.
1: <laughs> I will I will tell you I will never I will never cry for a venture capitalist.
2: But I, I wonder whether there have been any times in your career where you've you know, tough times tough times in your career where you've had to dig deep and come through the other side. And I wonder if you can talk about any of those times.
1: I would say the hardest. For me and probably for even for our entrepreneurs have been around, frankly, having to, to make some decisions on like headcount stuff. Um, this is not, it doesn't pertain to anything recently. This is more around the course of my 15 year career. I personally take those not only seriously, but there's like a really real emotional component to it. You probably got a little of this from what I was alluding to earlier around that these are people's livelihoods and their families' livelihoods and things. I even had one entrepreneur who we proactively were looking at cutting costs, even though the business was doing really well. And he wrote a full like manifesto for the, the board and actually broke down during the board meeting. Like That's how important it was to that CEO that he had to even part with one person on his staff type of thing. And that is certainly felt, at least from me at the board level, we're one step further removed from these decisions, but it's just as personal. And those have definitely been the hardest moments of my life, even within Sapphire and previous jobs. Like anytime you're parting ways with someone, whether voluntary or involuntary, that's always tough because it really is the, cohesion of the group and the culture of the group and we certainly pride ourselves on continuing to have a very strong cultural foundation but it's it's almost like losing a family member and so those would certainly be my hardest hardest moments
0: yeah it's interesting because i think a lot of people think vcs are very cold because we have to say no quite a lot and actually when you're on the inside it is a very human role and it is dealing with Founders who obviously have a lot more going on than just necessarily their business. They have the pressures of their team and that human connection, everything, uh, managing boards, etc. So there is a huge human element to to VC as well as unfortunately having to look at numbers and markets and say no to a lot of people.
1: I will say the one the the other flip side to that is you also ride the highs, right? Like when things are going well and you close a big deal or you land a, a great. Uh, executive, those highs are just as high as some of those lows are low, um, and so it it goes both ways. But it really it, it the way we approach these things are it's it's one family. You are you're part of the Sapphire family, and from day one, you're it's it's as if you're a, a, like a sibling of mine. And so you ride all the greats and and all the bads.
0: We've covered so much, but we'd like to get to know you a bit as well. And you know, Hector's already asked there about you know some of the low moments, but. Do you have a goal for your career? Do you have like any sort of mission statement or anything? What are you trying to get out of your career personally?
1: Yeah, this is probably a little bit loose, but like, honestly, I couldn't ask to do a better job. I talk to the smartest, most creative people doing the most outrageously interesting things on a daily basis. I wouldn't change that for the world. My ultimate goal is and i think if you talk like if you were to get my mom on this or something she'd probably say this from me from like a young age is i've just always wanted people to be as successful as possible and that definition of success can be a thousand different shades of gray and it can be financial it can be professional it can be personal any of those i've just always liked using whatever i can to help empower others to ultimately reach their goals and venture has been an incredible conduit to do that through and medium to do that through. And so my goal is really just to continue doing that. I don't have a like, oh, I want to invest in a company that becomes a hundred billion dollar market cap business, or I want to have. Twelve IPOs and ten M and A exits. It's not not like a quantified element of that, but it really is to just continue doing what I'm doing so that others can be incredibly successful in what they want to do.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's that's a great mission for for you and the people around you. Just as importantly, so Kevin, we've covered quantified self, board management, pattern recognition, coaching portfolio growth where we've covered some amazing topics. It's almost been like a mentoring session for Hector and I, just as much as it will be amazing for our audience to listen to. But we like to wrap up our episodes with our dinner party guest game. So if you could have dinner with any three people in history, who would they be?
1: It's always such a good question. I, I guess I'll go alive. There'd like, i like. There'd be hundreds historically that I would love to, to spend time with and pick their brands. Uh, but given that I'm living in the here and now i will I will choose some people that are here I don't know these probably won't be the most uh, unique or creative, but I have always just loved the idea of thinking outside the box but really outside of the constraints that the world seems to create for itself and in that realm, not surprisingly Elon Musk would a hundred percent pop into mind like if there's Anyone and however you feel about Elon Musk, if there's anyone who's going to ultimately change this world and for the benefit of our species and and other species, he can do it. He's certainly showing that he's at least trying to do that. So just thinking on a different plane, like I even get stuck into my sort of like what life is supposed to be. uh, And he seems to just think on a totally different plane. In a similar vein, I would love to chat with James Cameron, the producer and director of like Titanic. And I'd say more of like Avatar, just because he's been pushing boundaries at some point. The technology wasn't there for him to properly make something like an avatar. And he created technologies in order to do that. And just thought of, I just, again, love people who take themselves out of the constructs of life and create new ones. The third one I would I would love to spend time with Serena Williams, the tennis player. And the reason for that is that she just has like such unbridled competitiveness to her. So despite being incredibly successful, it's just like that mentality of like, I will not, I cannot lose and I will not lose. Coupled with the fact that she has a very successful sister and set of sisters, but if you think of Venus... When she was younger, like growing up sort of in that shadow, but also being incredibly supportive, even playing together in doubles and things like that. I'm one of five, but I I have a twin brother. And that question of like the balance of competitive and, and cooperative is always one that people ask me about. And we are incredibly close. We've never had like a real competitive stick. We've always wanted each other to just be as successful, whether it was sports or school or career. But I would love to pick her brain on some of that dynamic of like overcoming some of that, but also being an incredible partner and incredible sister to someone who's similarly competing against you at the highest level. So I I don't know if those are very original, but but certainly those three would be a great dinner.
0: Awesome. Great dinner party. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on and telling us your riding unicorn story. As I said, amazing insight there into how you think about venture, how Sapphire thinks about venture, some of the highs and lows along the way. Um, Really amazing. So thank you again for coming on.
1: No, thank you both for having me. Uh, This was great.
0: That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media. And we'll see you on the next episode.